Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Thank you for joining us today on the Independent Women's Forum podcast. I'm Inez Stepman, and I'm speaking today with Hadley Heath Manning, IWF's Director of Policy, who has spent a ton of years of her career working in healthcare policy and is a real expert in this area. Welcome, Hadley. Hey, thanks for having me, and thanks for billing me so highly, although I, I, I like to pretend <laughs> like I'm pretty young. I don't have a ton of years of, of work. No, she's young, <laughs> yeah. I mean, for her age. She's very young, but she has spent a lot of years of her young life in healthcare policy. If you, we'll if clarify you are, that right if, off. If the you bat. work in healthcare policy, it puts a lot of years on you. Maybe we can put it that way. It's a stressful <laughs> policy topic. Uh, so today we'll be exploring how healthcare impacted the midterms and then where healthcare policy might be going post midterms and beyond. So if you were listening to the media coverage um, around the midterms, issues like the Kavanaugh hearing, protests from the left political violence, those issues kind of dominated in terms of the media coverage. But 41% of Americans said that healthcare was their top priority for the election, the thing that was most important to them for this, these 2018 midterms. Can you tell us a little bit about why Americans continue to prioritize healthcare as one of the key issues in elections? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting uh, percentage, that 41%. It was the plurality of voters citing health care as their top choice. But if you look below the average, you'll see it was actually a much more important issue for Democrat voters than it was for Republican voters. Um, more Democrats say uh, that they believe health care needs major change, which is kind of fascinating when you think about the last major change took place under a united Democrat government with President Obama uh, and his party having both houses of Congress. They passed the Affordable Care Act, of course. Um, but about half of Democrats um, in this cycle were running on the Medicare for all uh, topic and also a lot of uh, health care voters citing as their main problem, health care costs. And, and we can look at the data and we see that health care costs continue to be a problem for Many Americans, obviously on both sides of the aisle, were affected by this. American companies, uh, the American economy, and American individuals are paying more for health care than we ever have, and it's consuming about 18% of our GDP. So I think people are citing this as the main issue because it's an issue that they continue to see as problematic. Yeah, and, and you mentioned, you know, of course, the last major overhaul of health care was Obamacare. Um, and Republicans ran for seven years on repealing Obamacare. But as we all know, Republicans are going to Republican. And <laughs> they, uh, they failed to deliver on repealing Obamacare. Um, and, and something that had been sort of their mantra for years that every Republican candidate had uh, run on the fact that they, when they didn't actually control the presidency, they made sure to pass a repeal of Obamacare a gazillion times. But uh, when, it, when the chips were actually down, they did not repeal Obamacare. Uh, do you think that would have helped them in these midterm elections, hurt them? Um, you know, where sort of where is the Republican Party on Obamacare, on fixes to health care? What can they do and what should their message be going forward? Yeah, those are a bunch of great questions. And uh, <laughs> bottom line, I think the Republican Party should have repealed the Affordable Care Act when they had the chance. I mean, not only would this have advanced uh, a policy goal that they've been, as you mentioned, promising to their base for, you know, election after election. This is something that they ran on. It was a promise that they made and a promise that they broke. And I think if you're a Republican in Congress, you know, it's got to be exceedingly frustrating uh, to look at this topic because people may forget that in 2017, Republicans came just within an inch of actually doing something on health care. The House passed the American um, Health Care Act and the Senate 
almost passed it. I mean, they were using the budget reconciliation process and they were short one vote. Everybody remembers John McCain giving this bill the thumbs down. And that was effectively the end of Republican efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, at least in the last term. Um, but I, I think not only would it have advanced a policy goal when they had the chance, but it would have uh, riled up the Republican base and, and proved in the same way uh, sort of effectively that the Kavanaugh issue did that Republicans are capable of having a backbone. I think there's still a lot of distrust um, for Republicans when it comes to entitlement reform. A lot of Republican voters want to see entitlement reform, but they recognize that when you send people to Washington to do that, it often doesn't actually get done because it can be such a, a politically fraught issue. Um, and not only that, but I think the Democrats were able to capitalize on the issue of health care, even in the absence of any real changes to the Affordable Care Act, because they ran on sort of the spooky, um, fictitious counterfactual that we'll never see. Um, they were able to depict the Republican efforts to repeal the ACA as if they had succeeded, um, pointing to a Congressional Budget Office report that said, you know, 24 million American people might not have the same insurance coverage under the new uh, repeal and replace legislation. They said, you know, people with pre-existing conditions would be locked out of the health care system. And, and they made a lot of hay on those points. Uh, they made a lot of ads. <laughs> they spent a lot of money on on those points, um, sort of criticizing Republicans. But the problem with that is that we'll never really know. You know, if at, le at least if Republicans had put in place their legislation, then Americans would have had reality to check those claims against. But, you know, voters didn't have that reality. And so the fear mongering, I think, was very successful in most cases, um, because across the country, about 58% of voters said they trust Democrats on the issue of pre-existing conditions more than they trust Republicans. Only 34% of people said they trusted Republicans. But two interesting factoids, data points under that, uh, is that a couple of states, uh, the Republican candidates were able to fight that particular measure to a draw, um, meaning about half of voters said they trusted Republicans you know, as much as Democrats on the issue of pre-existing conditions. And those states just happened to be Indiana and Missouri. And we saw Republicans picking up Senate seats in those states. So I think that was really um, a very critical uh, topic of debate, something that if Republicans were able to fight to a draw on the pre-existing uh, conditions piece, then they were able to effectively, you know, win the election. Yeah. So um, speaking of pre-existing conditions, are, are there any uh, sort of policy fixes to Obamacare now that we know now that the House has flipped? It's not likely that um, Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act will be actually repealed. Um, it wasn't even repealed when Republicans controlled the House. So, um, you know, are there any are there any bright spots for health care policy for conservatives? Is there are there some things the Trump administration might be able to do or uh, fixes that might actually garner some bipartisan support, just things that are clearly not working um, within the Affordable Care Act that need uh, that you might we might be able to convince Democrats and Republicans need to be fixed. Yeah, you know, one of the underreported stories of the the first two years of the Trump administration, I think, is uh, how much has actually been done. Um, for example, when Congress passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they were able to reduce the individual mandate penalty. That's the tax penalty people pay for not having health insurance, they reduced that to zero. So that effectively repeals the individual mandate. Uh, in another bipartisan budget bill, they were able to repeal the Independent Payment Advisory Board, or IPAB, which is part of the Affordable Care Act that uh, created a 15-member board of, of 
appointees, these people would not be elected to serve six-year terms to make um, effectively make cuts to per capita spending in Medicare, uh, which is a great cause of concern when you consider how you know cuts to Medicare can affect um, seniors' access to healthcare services. Uh, Sarah Palin referred to this board as a death panel, um, and it would have effectively resulted in rationing. So that was good that they were able to repeal that board. Um, and the Trump administration, without uh, help from Congress, was able to expand access to short-term, limited-duration insurance plans, um, basically expanding the amount of time that people can use these plans so that they can you know, more or less compete with the Affordable Care Act plans in the marketplace and provide a more affordative, uh, affordable alternative to uh, the ACA plans. And they were also able to make association health plans more available. And those plans, um, you know, if you're someone who's self-employed, um, you can now join an association health plan. And this can save some consumers up to $9,700 a year in premiums, according to a study by Avalair. So uh, there's a lot of bright spots already uh, in what the administration's been able to do. And I think politically, the administration and, and Republicans in general should be touting uh, these accomplishments a little bit more because I think they represent generally the direction that conservatives want to go in healthcare, which is expanding the choices that are available to people, um, creating more market competition, which does drive costs down. It's the only way to effectively drive costs down. I don't know that Democrats are necessarily going to get on board um, and, and head in that direction with Republicans. Maybe some sensible Democrats will recognize that more choices doesn't necessarily take protections. It doesn't take protections away from people. Uh, for example, people with pre-existing conditions. It doesn't change anything about the rules that apply to ACA-compliant plans. Um, but Democrats instead, you know, I think they have a lot to to work out internally in their own party in terms of which direction they want to go on health care, because, as I mentioned, about half of Democrat candidates in this cycle were running on Medicare for all. So let's talk about Medicare for all. Um, you know, we hear a lot about the cost. I mean, what would be what would happen if if Medicare for all was implemented in the U.S.? What do you think the, the consequences to the American health care system would be? Oh, I mean, they'd be sweeping. You know, what we have today is so convoluted and so messed up. I really can't blame anybody for, you know, wanting some very major changes to come to the way that we pay for health care. Uh, we do have a lot of third parties paying for our health care. It's uh, insurance companies, uh, mostly insurance companies who are uh, engaged by employers to offer coverage as an on-the-job benefit uh, that makes it very difficult for people who don't have sort of your traditional full-time job uh, to access those benefits. And um, so, yeah, if we had single payer, we wouldn't have an employer-centric system anymore, um, meaning everybody would essentially have the same kind of access to coverage. And I think the way Democrats want to get there, I think the way they may have to get there is by first offering what's called a public option so more or less, they would pretend as if the private market's going to continue to operate uh, similar to how it, it has been. And they'd say, well, here's, you know, we'll just allow people to buy into Medicare, buy into uh, Medicaid more uh, accurately. And um, I don't think this would last long. You know, it's hard for the private market to continue to compete with government when government offers subsidization to the public option and, you know, only taxes and regulates the private options that are available. So it's really not a, a level playing field. And we can't pretend like that kind of competition is really going to last long. Look at Medicare today. There's not a lot of uh, seniors who 
aren't enrolled in Medicare, for example. Um, and if they do enroll, in, if they choose not to, to get their Medicare benefits, then seniors also have to opt out of Social Security, which is a real uh, form of coercion, in my opinion. Um, but the the way our health care system would respond uh, is pretty clear in the way that they already respond to uh, patients who are in Medicaid or in Medicare uh, to a lesser extent. Those programs offer certain reimbursements for um, the, the different services that are provided to those patients, but they aren't enough to uh, fully cover the cost of providing those services and those treatments in a lot of cases. And so uh, Medicare and Medicaid are causing our hospitals and our uh, healthcare system broadly uh, to operate at a loss. And so to make up those losses, um, healthcare providers shift the cost onto patients with private health insurance, um, causing our premiums to increase even more. Now, without that option, without private insurers in the ball game. Uh, hospitals and, and healthcare providers are going to have to find other ways to make up those losses or to cut those losses. And uh, that will ultimately result in um, longer wait times and less access. You know, I, I'm married to a physician. I know physicians are really more or less, um, you know, pressed to go from patient to patient as quickly as possible. We would see that trend get worse. We're facing a terrible doctor shortage in the United States when it comes to primary care. That trend would get worse as uh, the profession becomes, you know, more expensive to get into because the cost of medical training has increased dramatically over a generation and the pay has, you know, decreased at least um, relative to how it used to be for primary care doctors. Um, so we're really creating a situation where rather than expanding the supply of healthcare services that are available we would restrict the supply of what's available and we would increase demand because people, when they think they're covered by a single payer, you know, system would just go and seek as much, you know, healthcare as possible. And that's a, a recipe for a tremendous shortage. Um, and I, I think bad news for uh, patients because it means we wouldn't be able to access the healthcare that we need. Certainly not the quality of healthcare that we have today and certainly not the level of innovation that we have today. Um, well, let's end on a happier note. Uh, okay. <laughs> let's, let's, let's ignore the fact that um, the, the Republicans failed to deliver on their promises. And, and in fact, now the Democrats control the House. What would conservative reform, so beyond repealing um, the ACA, what would conservative reform of our healthcare sector look like? And what would it look like from the patient perspective, from the doctor perspective, um, and, and, you know, sort of to give us an image of what our healthcare system could look like without all of the this incredible like it's, it, it, I think you, you mentioned in some of your um, your pieces about this it's really hard to even call our healthcare market a market it is so heavily regulated so so what would a less regulated healthcare market look like well you know we're beginning to see some uh, image of, of what this could really be just on the outskirts of our healthcare system where uh, certain physicians have gotten so fed up with the way, the payment pipeline is so convoluted that they're they're starting to do direct primary care and they're starting to do more direct pay for healthcare services. Um, this is really the way that we should approach healthcare services that are not catastrophic. So one reason our our healthcare system's so messed up is because we've essentially 
taken the concept of insurance out of health insurance. Insurance in any other context is a backstop against unexpected costs. But in healthcare, we expect our health insurer to pay for virtually everything. So it's more or less simply a third party to every transaction. We could cut the third party out of a lot of those transactions, save a lot of money, make doctors a lot happier, you know, improve their quality of life. I think that their profession is most likely to commit suicide, um, not just because of the bureaucratic frustrations of the job, but because they're, you know, around and dying people more often than most of us are. Um, but if we if we could move to a model where many of our healthcare services were direct pay, we didn't have to involve a third party, we'd see a lot more affordable and, and, and more access to those services. Um, on the other hand, when it does come to insurance, we've got to treat it like insurance again. And that means getting rid of federal and state regulations that require insurance companies to pay for you know, preventive care from the first dollar and require them to cover a laundry list of services that not every person needs coverage for. Um, and essentially to allow them to offer different um, patients different types of plans. You know, not everybody needs the same insurance plan. That was the one of the um, design flaws in the Affordable Care Act. So if people were allowed to purchase a health insurance plan that sort of suited their needs, their uh, you know level of risk that they're comfortable with, their financial level of risk that they're comfortable with, um, then we would see people buying much more affordable insurance, um, buying you know a lot of health care on their own um, at affordable prices. And then when they did have a catastrophic health event, maybe they're diagnosed with a, a disease, a condition, or they you know they have a terrible injury, they get hit by a bus. Then when they go to the hospital or the closest urgent care facility, those costs are covered by their insurance. Just like when we have a car accident, our car insurance covers those costs. So um, we, we do, I think, have to get away from the employer-centric model simply because too many Americans, you know, in our generation, Inez, are, are not working 30 years for the same company. And, and too many of those disruptions from job to job shouldn't be the reason that our health insurance coverage is disrupted as well. Um, so I think if we could, you know, maybe provide a universal tax deduction or a universal tax credit, that would help transition away from th the fact that people with on-the-job benefits get those benefits excluded from taxes. But if you buy your own insurance, you have to pay taxes on those dollars before you can use them in the marketplace. That's a, a disparity, and it's unfair. And unfortunately, it's it's really regressive. It punishes people uh, who are, you know, marginalized in society, um, and it really rewards people who have good you know, full-time good paying jobs. Um, so maybe the left, you know, could get on board with that. I think they ought to. Uh, it's just a very politically difficult thing to do um, because people, as much as they want change in healthcare, uh, you can see from the way the Affordable Care Act was sold that they really don't want change if they're happy with what they have. That's why President Obama promised if you like your plan, you can keep it. And that's what's hard about reforming health care or any other issue is that there's sort of now a status quo advantage uh, to the Affordable Care Act. People don't like it, but they're not sure if they're going to like the next thing either. <laughs> so it's sort of the devil we know now. Um, but I, I would hope that sometime in the future, if, if more conservatives were able to have more control over you know, the legislative process, that we could revisit this issue and really expand the options, expand the choices that are available to people, use market competition to keep costs down, and at the same time, provide safety nets for people who for no reason, no fault of their own, simply have very high health care costs. You know, people can't help it if they are diagnosed with cancer. And I don't think they should um, suffer as a result. I don't think they should become bankrupt as a result. And and there are ways to protect those people and focus our government assistance on, on that 
smaller group of people, um, much better ways to do it than the Affordable Care Act did. So that's my long answer to an easy question, you know, what, what would conservatives do? Uh, we just haven't had the chance to, you know, even if Republicans control Congress, doesn't mean conservatives do. <laughs> Ain't that always the truth? Uh, and as, as the former owner of a, um, a private uh, plan, that high deductible plan prior to Obamacare that only covered catastrophic things, um, that was, I lost my health insurance along with uh, lost thousands and thousands of other Americans. I lost my health insurance with, uh, with Obamacare. So happy to hear you uh, say that we should move back towards catastrophic plans. Hadley, thanks so much for enlightening us about healthcare. This is Inez Stepman with the Independent Women's Forum. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.